0: You're listening to the Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California.
1: Thanks, guys. Um, I'm assuming everybody can hear and see me at this point. Uh, All good. I saw a thumbs up. Um, Yeah, so I'm obviously uh, not there. This is actually the first time. That I have delivered my talk over Zoom, I think, in more than a year. So, uh, from this room. um, But uh, yeah, you know, I came down with a little something. There was a fever involved. I'm still a little bit elevated in temperature, not technically having a fever today. Testing negative for COVID. It's the stuff the kids gave me. I don't know. But anyway, just out of an abundance of precaution and because of the wonders of technology, here I am. Isn't that awesome? All right, so today uh, we are continuing on in our Lenten series on the sufferings of God in Christ. And our text this morning is the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's read it now from Matthew's Gospel. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want be done. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away for the second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found his disciples sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying these same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer interprets this story, who was a German theologian of the 20th century. He was executed uh, by the Nazis in in a Nazi prison for participating in an assassination plot against Hitler, he wrote this from from prison. Christians stand by God in his hour of grieving. That is what distinguished Christians from others. Jesus asked in Gethsemane, could you not watch with me one hour? That is a reversal of what the religious man expects from God. Man is summoned, or humanity is summoned to share in God's sufferings at the hands of a godless world. He must therefore really live in the godless world without attempting to gloss over or explain its ungodliness in some religious way or another, end quote. There's so much in that that I think warrants another reading. Um, This is like Lectio Divinia, (laughs) for those of you familiar with the practice. Let's read this again. Christians stand by God in his hour of grieving. This is what distinguished Christians from others. Jesus asked in Gethsemane, could you not watch with me one hour? That is a reversal of what the religious man expects from God. Humanity is summoned to share in God's sufferings at the hands of a godless world. He must therefore really live in the godless world without attempting to gloss over or explain his ungodliness in some religious way or another. Okay, I I think that's exactly the right reading of the Garden of Gethsemane story, and I'm going to explore what I think Bonhoeffer meant here for the rest of our time together, because I think he gets at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Bonhoeffer is saying that a Christian is someone who shares in the sufferings of God in the world, period. That's it. A Christian is someone who shares in the sufferings of God in the world. And Bonhoeffer himself is a really good example of what that meant. After all, he's writing this from a Nazi prison for his part in an assassination plot against Hitler, but he was also there for simply being an outspoken critic of the Third Reich from day one in the 1930s. Like other German citizens who resisted, Bonhoeffer too was persecuted and eventually killed for it. So he knew. He knew what it was to suffer for the cause of justice and the liberation of the oppressed in his day, in his time, just as Christ did. This is what Bonhoeffer believed it meant to be a Christian or a disciple of Christ to share in the sufferings of God in the world. Consider that nowhere in the gospels do we find Jesus instructing his disciples on having the correct theology and beliefs. Jesus gave them no creed to memorize or recite. Nowhere did Jesus teach the doctrine of the virgin birth or the doctrine of of the immaculate conception. Nowhere does he teach uh, teaches disciples the doctrine of the Trinity or anything having to do with the doctrine of original sin or the doctrine of the fall of man. Nowhere does he instruct them on, on having the correct atonement doctrine uh, and how his death will somehow you know, appease God's wrath or God's sense of justice or, or function as a ransom payment to Satan on, on our behalf. None of that. All of that was read later Into back into Jesus's story by the church of the first four centuries. And something tells me the historical Jesus of Nazareth would have been quite surprised by all of the theology people came up with about him. But I digress. The only thing the Jesus we find in the four gospels seemed to require to be his disciple was that you followed his way of living in the world, which meant that you would practice love and justice, especially for the poor and the powerless, which in turn would mean that you would stand against those powers and institutions that exploit and harm them. This in turn, of course, would also mean that you would incur the wrath of those powers and institutions, their their contempt and their disdain be they the state powers or the religious powers, and they are often in cahoots, as they were in Jesus' day, as they are in, in ours. And this, in turn, is part of what it means to share in Christ's sufferings and the sufferings of others. And this is what it meant to be his disciple. A Christian is someone who shares in the sufferings of Christ in the world and the sufferings of others as he did by standing in solidarity with the suffering and the oppressed. Another important understanding we can glean from Bonhoeffer here and his reading of the Gethsemane story, it comes from these words. Bonhoeffer says, Jesus asked in Gethsemane, could you not watch with me one hour? That is a reversal of what the religious man expects from God. Humanity is summoned To share in God's sufferings at the hands of a godless world. End quote. In other words, the God revealed in Gethsemane is not the God of traditional religion, which is an all-powerful deity that doesn't need our help. Right? Rather, in Gethsemane, God is begging us to pray with him, to stay awake with him, to, to keep watch with him, to bear witness with him. And to minister to him, even, in his hour of need, in his hour of grief, this is a reversal of what a religious person usually expects from God. A religious person usually says, "God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our help. After all, he's God. <laughs> he's He's almighty. what What does he need us us for? But but that idea of God, is antithetical to the God revealed in Gethsemane who's imploring us with, you know, prayers and tears, as it were, to stay awake, to minister to him, to comfort him, to grieve with him, to bear, to bear witness with him. Gethsemane is really a metaphor, in my opinion. It's really a metaphor for the entire world. The whole world is Gethsemane. We are always with Christ in Gethsemane because the world is always a place of suffering where God is grieving and asking us to join him in his grief and to answer his prayers and tears by being his hands and feet in the world.
2: We never think that God prays, do we? We only think of prayer in terms of us praying to God.
1: But the God revealed in Gethsemane certainly prays. And he's praying to us, you could say. He's praying that we might answer his prayers and tears and answer each other's prayers and tears by being his hands and feet in the world, in the so-called godless world. God has staked everything on us, you could say. He He has put all of his hopes and prayers on us that we might actually be his body in the world, his presence and power this too is what it means to share in his sufferings. Finally, I think when Bonhoeffer says a Christian therefore must really live in the godless world without attempting to gloss over it or explain its ungodliness in some some religious way, I think he's criticizing how many Christians often greet the suffering of the world with religious platitudes like God. Is in control, right? God is still on the throne. God's in control. God has a plan, right? Everything will work out okay in the end because, you know, God's almighty and he's in control. Or God will never let us suffer more than we can handle in this life. Maybe you've heard some of these before. I'm certain you have. All such religious platitudes are attempts to cover over. Our anxieties about suffering and death, they are attempts to gloss over, as Bonhoeffer put it, people's sufferings, our sufferings. But in so doing, we actually downplay and we dismiss suffering, our sufferings and the sufferings of others. We, we dismiss them, we downplay them as if to say, you know, what you're going through isn't such a big deal because, you know, God must have some good purpose for it. Or one day when you get to heaven, you'll, uh, you'll understand that the sufferings of this life were really nothing, right? Compared to paradise and glory on high, this, the, the problems of this life, the sufferings of this life are, are minuscule in comparison. This is what we're taught in, uh, in the church quite often. But on a deeper level, such statements are a, are a refusal to accept reality or what Bonhoeffer calls the godlessness of the world. To accept the godlessness of the world is to accept that there is no God controlling outcomes and assuring us that everything will work out great in the end. Such ideas are escapist, meaning they are ways of escaping the world, escaping reality, and thereby escaping our Christian duty to really live in the world where Christ is. To be clear, Bonhoeffer wasn't wasn't an atheist. Uh, He wasn't being an atheist when he called the world godless. He was merely saying that a certain kind of God does not exist in the world. This all powerful supreme being that intervenes in history and makes everything okay and assures us of happy endings. This God doesn't exist. Keep in mind his context as he's writing this. Remember, he's in a Nazi prison. In 1944, and he's seen all of Europe utterly destroyed and and all of the unthinkable human suffering that's associated with that, that came along with that. We can't even imagine. And so he wondered what possible response
2: could religion, and namely Christianity, offer people in light of such, such a world?
1: The tired old cliches like, you know, God's in control, God has a plan, such cliche religious responses just don't cut it in the modern world and never really did. That's his point. He therefore believed, and rightfully so, that our conceptions of God must be radically reformed in light of, of reality, in light of the world as it actually is. And this too is a way of sharing in the sufferings of Christ, he believed. Because it's a hard and painful thing to change our understanding of God from the all-powerful supreme being to a suffering God. A God who meets us in our brokenness and our sufferings. You know, From a God who, who calls us to, to heaven on high to a God who calls us to life in the world as it actually is. You know, Such a shift in our understanding of God is, is kind of scary at first. The so-called godlessness of the world is is pretty scary and people will often will often do almost anything and believe almost anything in order to escape that that understanding i think the anti science bias among conservative christians today right this rejection of science this rejection of evolution this rejection of natural history from a scientific perspective you know all of that is rooted in this fear i think over the godlessness of the world, this discomfort with a scientific rendering of natural history that reveals a chaotic and random universe where we are all subject to time and chance, and God is clearly not in total control of things, right? But this rejection of science and reality is part of this refusal to live in the world uh, and to share in the sufferings of Christ. where Christ actually is. Ironically, the refusal to acknowledge the godlessness of the world is itself a refusal to share in the sufferings of God and Christ. And again, many many refuse to do so because this is scary. But here we find a deeper understanding of faith. True faith, in my opinion, and Bonhoeffer's it seems, true faith is to meet reality head on with courage, to confront the conundrum of life and to embrace life as it is in all of its precariousness and still say yes to life and affirm life anyway. To create meaning in a meaningless world is is a profound act of faith. To create goodness and beauty in a world that is often not good and not beautiful, this too is an act of faith a deeper kind of faith, it seems to me. And this too is what it means to share in the sufferings of God in Christ and to keep watch with him in Gethsemane and to answer his prayers and tears. All right. There is uh, my talk from today. (laughs) And uh, I'm wanting to open it up now for discussion. And I'm assuming I can hear you guys if If anybody wants to raise a question or make a comment,
2: please do so, and we'll do our best to to handle things here. Anybody this morning? Hey, I can see people. All right. <laughs> That's cool. Oh, okay, here we go. Oh, we got one. All right. We got a live one. Um All right.
1: Hey Leanne.
3: Hey. Um, I can't remember her name. Richard Rohr mentions her um a couple times. Um, so forgive me for not knowing, but there's um, there was like a young Jewish woman he references in some of his books, who was also um a victim of the Holocaust, I believe, and spoke directly about this idea. Um I think it was like a very stunning sentence she wrote where she was like, if I can take one piece of like the sufferings of God on my shoulders, then like you know, she considered that, like, oh, I'm going to, like, hopefully be able to take part of the burden of, like, the sufferings of God on me. Interesting. Um, yeah, it was very striking. Um, he references it, I believe, in the universal Christ. Um, so maybe I'll have to find her name. But she, yeah, interestingly enough, was also um, involved in all of that in that period of time. But I just thought that that sentiment is so powerful of, like, yeah. uh, what can is you, my can
1: you- role? Yeah, can you say more about what that means to you? Maybe I'm putting you on the spot, I know, but can you say more about why that struck such a chord to you with you?
3: Um, yes, I feel like as you've touched upon, Aaron, that other way of thinking, it's very easy to like think about deferring responsibility like, oh, I don't need to participate, I don't need to help that. That's God's role. Right. And that can be like a really comforting thing to say, like, oh, God, I'll handle it. Like that person who's suffering, God's with them. And it's like that. Thoughts person. and prayers. Yeah. yeah, thoughts and prayers. It's like the spiritual bypassing. Yeah. When you say, like, what is my role in shouldering bur- the burden, like this collective burden? Which also gets to like this idea in America of like, no one, like, no one wants to talk about collective burden. It's like mm-hmm. It's all individualized. Like, there is no collective burden. It's like,
2: yes, there is. <laughs> Hi. Thanks, Leanne. Your words, but to echo what do you, what is your name?
0: To echo what Leanne was saying, there is this like generalization everywhere we go that, oh, well, that's not your problem at work. That person just got fired. Like, you don't have to be there for them. Like, God has them. Like, look the other way or. I don't even know how to put it in words because it's so heavy on my heart and soul right now. But like, I look at us as as all of God's children and my name literally means God is with us, Emmanuel. And I don't know how to turn a blind eye and I do lose sleep and I do cry and I do want to help everybody. But so many people in America today are just willing to let someone starve, cry. Almost like jump off of a bridge on their own. Like when sometimes all somebody needs is a smile, a hug. Or do you need anything? Maybe you just want a glass of water. And I don't, I don't know even know where or how this became like this. But thank you for sharing.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing those thoughts.
0: Is your name Aaron?
1: Yeah, I'm Aaron. What is your name?
0: My name is Emmanuel, and this is my daughter Phoenix.
1: Nice, well. nice meeting you too. Thanks for being here today.
0: Yeah, no, I was scared to speak up, but my daughter
2: was like, excuse me, why are you scared? <laughs> That's not what we teach at home. Well, welcome. Welcome. Thanks for sharing. Hey, Emily. Hey. Um, I think I
4: brought this up a couple of weeks ago during this whole thing, but um I was saying that like the religious right um has a religious irresponsibility that because it's so individualist it's all about the personal salvation it's not about the salvation of everyone and how can you you know like one of my aunts is like i feel like i'm going to hell because i'm not out preaching the good news to people like she's at home reading her bible at midnight by herself on praying for people on her prayer list but she's worried because she's not out being a warrior and a soldier it's like Why are you only focusing on the personal salvation? It should be the things that you're doing and not just the church, you know, not just the things that surround the church. If you think God was here for love and justice, was God here for love and justice for all people? And if that answer is yes, then it is your responsibility to be like Christ in that manner rather than just going, well, God will handle that or God protects me. Nope, nobody's protecting you here. That's, that's not, you know, I think realizing, and Aaron, you know this, I called you in tears, being like, oh my God, there's no all powerful God. What, what are we doing then? Yeah. <laughs> How do we make it? How do we get up every day? How do we, you know, it's, yeah, it's just, and from your inner self, you're not giving your power to God and going, I have no responsibility here it's you taking your power back and doing what you need to do in this world for everyone around you that walks through your path give them a glass of water give them you know a hug give them you know an ear it's just for me it's simple i'm like you my conscience doesn't let me let those things go but when you have that personal salvation and you think it's not about me and it's not about them, it's about God, and God has them, you've now done the opposite of what I think Jesus would want us to do, so.
1: Yeah, good stuff, thank you for sharing, yeah, anybody else?
4: Yeah, Emmanuel's saying we're all his vessels, and that's the whole point, yeah, if we take a piece of the suffering, right, like, we're taking a piece of him, we're supposed to act like him here, that's the burden, right, of that lady who's in the book, Leanne, like, just take that and you can have the familiarity of what he felt a little bit. And then, you know, you're supposed to do your job on this earth, you know?
1: Right. Which is a radical shift from the way that many of us were raised to think of God in our uh, status as Christians or believers or followers of Christ. Yeah.
2: Anybody else this morning?
1: Emmanuel is saying this somewhere.
2: Okay.
0: And I think that's also part of like the old school way or traditional or conventional way of thinking because my mom is Catholic. So I went to Catholic school and she's a French lady that grew up during World War II. And my dad is Hindu. And when I was in Catholic school, there was a very like strict, if you don't do this and you don't say your rosary 29 times, you're going to hell. And would God really send me to hell? But then people use it in raising their kids, like God's not gonna like this and you're gonna go, you know? And it's just like this sort of manipulation when God, in my opinion, the real God, like truly loves all of us. And he knows what's in our brains and he knows what's in our heart. Um, and like we were just saying, we're all his vessels. Like our breath, every breath that we have is thankfully to him. And when he's ready for us to transition, we'll transition. We're not in control. And while we're here, we should follow that thing inside of us that gets us up every morning, even if it's God on one shoulder and the devil on the other, kick the devil to the side. I rebuke you, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm probably rambling, but it's just so heavy on my heart. Um, and to keep on doing, let his voice be louder than all the noise and the negativity. And I talk about negativity, like even from your family, your friends, because they might not know better in order to do better. The
2: dream of. <laughs> good stuff thanks thanks Manuel. all right well aaron thanks for uh thanks for joining us it's bright up here <laughs> thanks for joining. hey maybe we'll
1: just do this every sunday i don't know
2: okay take it easy <laughs>
1: <laughs> no i don't i really don't prefer this i i so much love being in person but yeah anyway i was just making a joke well we hope you feel better soon Uh, do we have the benediction Bob gave me a thumbs up I see
2: it in a little window
1: I've got it here Max if you can't read it I'll just read it out loud are you ready Bob Bob says he's getting it Oh, okay
2: you you, you, go Go and lead it you go and lead it
4: Uh, as we do every week here this is our benediction that we'll say together as we go As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen.